you know, life isn't just about that. It's about people and it's about the journey that you take with those people. And I realize it's about, you know, being selfish about being selfless. Today, we are joined with Jason Van Camp, a former Special Forces Green Beret Detachment Commander. We discuss his early career in college football, his experience going through Special Forces selection, and his time in Iraq. An unplanned military retirement might have set him back, but Jason has gone on to start up multiple veteran companies, including writing a best-selling book, proving to adapt to change and find true success. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. Jason, how are you, man? Thanks for joining us tonight. It's great to finally have you on. I know uh, you're an incredibly busy man and running multiple companies, and I'm just thrilled that we could actually get you on here tonight. That's, hey, Bo, it's my honor to be here, man, because uh, I've been meaning to do this for a long time, but life gets away from you, man. It's... Uh, <laughs> I'm busy, you know, but that's not uh, not an excuse at all. I'm just trying to uh, carve out some time for the family and for business and for my friends and and everything else. So here we are. Yeah, and I know we have a very exciting episode with you. We'll cover a ton of ground, but I want to start with kind of an offhand question. But what was your drive to attend West Point? <laughs> my drive to attend West Point. <laughs> I don't think I was ever driven to attend West Point. Um, I, my story is a little different because I never aspired to go to the military academy. I never aspired to go to the military when I was a kid. I, I didn't really think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, um, I didn't have somebody to show me the way, like to say, Jason, if you just do this, you know, this is the path to success. This is what you need to do. Uh, my parents sort of really pushed me going to college, but they didn't tell me, hey, you need to go to this college, you need to do this, this is what you need to study and so forth. Uh, I played sports growing up and I love playing sports and I was good enough to get a, a college, to get a scholarship to go to college. And mm-hmm. when I was a junior in high school, um, you know, I was playing football and I was really good at football and I was getting a lot of letters from Division One schools. Uh, like University of Miami, Florida State, University of Virginia. Oh, wow. I thought I was the man, you know. I was like, oh, I'm going to go play big-time college football and, you know, <laughs> linebacker. And, you know, uh, my senior year comes along, and a lot of these recruiters would come to my high school, and they would see me, and they'd be like, you know, you could see the look of disappointment on their face. They're like, oh, man, this guy's barely over six foot, six foot tall, man. This guy's – you know, 190 pound linebacker, man, you know, like, and they were just like, you know, my, my, <laughs> my, uh, the interest level of some of those schools dwindled, you know, mm-hmm. and I started mm-hmm. getting uh, letters from division one AA schools, you know, and, and Ivy league schools and West Point and Naval Academy and, and places like that. And, uh, I was a little disappointed, man, because my heart was set on on big time college football, playing on national TV every Saturday, you know. Mm-hmm. And the recruiter at West Point, his name was Greg Gregory. He was the offensive coordinator, and for whatever reason, he just he just fell in love with me, man. It was basically like he was gonna get me no matter what. Mm-hmm. And he called me all the time, 
Mm-hmm. You know, he visited my school all the time. He talked me up all the time. And I, in my mind, I was thinking the whole time, like, man, I don't know how I'm going to let this guy down. I don't know how I'm going to break the news to him that I'm not going to West Point. And, uh, and one thing led to the other. And he came to my house for dinner one night. And he just said, Jason, you know, I need to know. You got to give me an answer. We need you to come to West Point. Is, are you coming? And I remember looking at my parents' faces, and they both were very clearly in support of me going to West Point. Like mm-hmm. They wanted me to go there. And uh, the other schools, I wasn't you know, super excited about them. I, I didn't have a clear path. I didn't know where I wanted to go. And so I told uh, Coach Gregory you know, in the living room of my house that night, I'm, I'm going to go to West Point. And he was fired wow. up. My parents were crying. They called up. You know, the head coach at West Point, they told him I was coming, and and I and that was it. You kind of you kind of took him for the team that night, then. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I I took. I guess you could say that. But yeah, that, that's how I ended up going to West Point. That's interesting. So, how how much did you know? I guess even those early stages, of what you were getting yourself into going to West Point. Oh man, they lied to me about everything. <laughs> you know, I, I remember growing up on my visit up there, not knowing anything. I mean, I, I knew West Point was in New York, and I knew mm-hmm. like Army Navy football game, but other than that, I knew nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, and we went up there, and I remember seeing the freshmen walking fast and doing the salutes, and like you know, being plebes, right? And I remember asking the coaches, like, "Who are those guys? Like, what are they doing?" Ah, d- don't worry about them. Don't worry about them. You're going to be up at the stadium the whole time. You're not going to have to do any of this stuff. Oh, okay. Well, what, you know, like, what are they doing? You know, and then. Uh, it's just, it was just ridiculous. They didn't tell me anything about, oh, you're going to get stakes every night. You know, you're going to have tutors for when you go to class. They do really take care of the football team. You guys are going to be like living on, living the dream when you come here. This is unbelievable. And you're kind of like, okay, interesting. And then when you get there, you know, you're a dirtbag like everybody else. And even more so because you play football. And at the time, it was like everybody was against the football players for some reason. And so, um, it was kind of like us versus them mentality. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't like that walking into West Point. I didn't want to be like, I'm, I'm a hated individual just because I'm part of a certain organization, you know, and it was, mm-hmm. uh, it just, it is what it, it is, what it is, I guess. It's like the biggest con artist. <laughs> well, it's just cause the only equivalency I can draw to it is to me, it would almost be like four years of basic training almost, but then there's a group of people who are being pulled out of like the day to day in basic training and then going to do their own thing for a while. And it seems fun. And then they're getting tied back in. So it's probably like from that outsider's mentality, they're a little pissed off and it's like, why do they get all this special treatment? And why do they get to go to travel to all these different places and go do all these things? Exactly. There was yeah. a lot of that. And you know, they, they call, um, you know, like uh, the sluggos or the guys that are like the, the guys that don't like the football players. We call them sluggos. And and uh, and a lot of those guys call the football players shit bags just because we, we went up and busted our ass for two and a half hours at the stadium, you know, working out and practicing and, uh, and being exhausted. Mm-hmm. And because we weren't around for duties, you know, mm-hmm. like delivering the mail or doing the laundry or cleaning up or whatever, we were – you know, we were, we were getting by, we yeah, were get yeah. overs, you know, and it's just like, come on, man. Like, 
we weren't a formation, but we were doing doing other things, right? I, you know, I've always been intrigued by this, and I, I think I might know the answer, but, um, you know, I think the Navy does this too. But uh, I know Army football team, you don't wear your your name on the back of your jersey, and it just says Army at the top, right? What's the what's the purpose of that? Well, when I was there, they did put your name on the back of the jersey. Oh, okay. Um, now what I'm seeing is, you know, and I can't speak to it, but what I understand is, you know, sort of the one tribe, one fight mentality. Like we're all brothers here. We're, we're all part of the army. Um, not just West Point, but but the actual army, like the military. Hmm. They wanted to uh, really bring people together, and if and if by doing that we bring people together, I'm I'm all for it. Yeah. You know. Apparently they've done the research and that's what works and and I'm cool with that. You know, if I was playing and they did that, you're like Jason, you can't have the your last name on the back of your jersey. We're gonna put Army. Okay, cool. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm fine with that. It's probably um, to kind of smooth over some of those relationships too between the people who are like on the football team versus those who are not. Yeah, I wonder if it kind of helped some of that mentality um, on the campus or in the academy. I hope so. I hope so because it's just so stupid. Yeah. Like, why? Why do we do it that? Why? Why is it like that? It just doesn't make any sense. It's a, it's a waste of time, and it's just so frustrating. Because, looking back on my experience, um, there were guys that I didn't associate with because they weren't football players, or I, or I was suspicious of them, or whatever. And then we get onto the regular army. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the greatest dude on earth. This is the nicest guy. This is the coolest guy. Mm-hmm. You know, why weren't we best buds at West Point? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it was just so dumb, yeah. you know? And um, something needs to be done about that. And hopefully somebody's doing something about that. Yeah. And, and going into that, so after you left West Point, where did you first serve? So I graduated and I went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma for OBC, you know, officer basic course. I was uh, an artillery guy when I first got into the Army. And... Um, that was basically because most of the West Point football players are artillery guys. Mm-hmm. And whatever reason, they just kind of chose that path. And I remember there were a lot of former Army football players that came back. There were artillery officers that talked to us. And I always thought, oh, he's he's kind of my people. He's a good guy. Like he's he's hard charging, he's ambitious, you know, but he's not like, you know, crazy like some of those infantry officers were. Right with the high and tide and like mm. you know you wouldn't shit if you ain't infantry like and it's like well you're a little too intense for me buddy you know what I mean like you can't have a conversation with any of those guys without it like going back to ranger school or like infantry tactics and it's like you know what God bless you if that's how you want to live your life that's great I, I I'm more of a whole person I can talk about you know other things just other than the infantry tactics or whatever mm. and so that's why I stayed away from it. But again, like once I got into the regular army and meeting like infantry guys, I'm like, those are my people. Those are great dudes. I should be around those guys. Who are those weirdos that they sent to West Point, man? Like, I don't know who those guys were to represent the infantry branch, but it just didn't really resonate with me at the time. But until I got to the regular army. So this was, I'm guessing, late 90s or early 2000s when you um, left, left West Point and then started in the regular army. Yeah, so I was at OBC and um, 9-11 happened, right, when I was at OBC. So I remember being uh, in class 
and uh, a couple of my buddies, they had fathers who were um, serving uh, in the military at the Pentagon. Oh, wow. And they started getting phone calls and they started leaving class, just walking out and like not even asking for permission. And people were like, what's going on? And I remember somebody was like, um, they flew a plane into uh, the Pentagon. Hmm. And I think most of us in the class thought it was an accident. Like, oh, some idiot, Mm -hmm. you know, like crashed or whatever. And uh, we have uh, 10-minute breaks in between our our classes every hour, you know. And everybody go back and go out in the hall. They use the restroom. They'd uh, get some water. There was a little coffee shop where you could buy, you know, snacks and drinks and things. And they had a little TV there uh, right behind kind of the, the coffee shop in the back with the glass and behind the glass. And we had like 200 people surrounding this coffee shop watching uh, an airplane, you know, flying to the Twin Towers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I never forget, it was a second plane that hit. And I remember we were all watching it in real time. And I think that, you know, that's when it all dawned on us, like, we're under attack. Yeah. Like this country is under attack. And then the next thought was, you know, we're going to war. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is no longer a military of uh, a training, you know, situation we're going into. This is, you know, now we're, we're getting ready to deploy, yeah. you know, and that like really changed everybody's mindset uh, immediately. Yeah. It's, you know, especially coming from West Point and everything, I, I feel like the mentality is, is maybe a, a little bit different, but, um, you didn't know necessarily exactly what you're getting into going into West Point, And then you didn't, really know i guess at the end of it what was about to happen with 9 11 mm-hmm. and you talked about it a little bit your mindset probably shifted somewhere completely different what was that that transition i guess in your thought process of you know i'm currently serving in the military but now i know i got to prepare for combat because this is about to happen you know going in and out of the gates at, at Fort Sill, oklahoma and the the security, the intensity, the attention to detail, the professionalism with trying to get in and out, like the seriousness of it, like made us all realize, okay, this is a, this is a real thing. And it got everybody excited, including myself, um, because it was like you're practicing, you know, all the time, but you never go to the game. Mm-hmm. Now it's like we have a game to go to, mm-hmm. and this is the most serious game of all, you know. And, and this is a chance for you to see what you're made of. You know, this is a chance for you to experience what real men have experienced. You know, gone to combat and done that, and to see how you're going to react, see how you're going to perform, and uh, and see how you separate yourself potentially from other people, mm-hmm. right? And so that was exciting to think about. Like it's, we're going, we're playing a game, you know, like yeah. we're going to the game time and this um we're gonna see how we do you know mm-hmm. and when i say we're playing a game i didn't want that to come across as um as trivial uh, what i was saying is you know it's a very serious thing like we're going to combat lives are on the line we got to be prepared yeah you know, we need to you know make sure that we take these classes seriously we need to make sure that we take what we're doing seriously because not only are our lives on the line but the lives of the of the men we're going to lead mm-hmm. you know and you hear that a lot at West Point, different things like that, but it's hard to see that or buy into that when, when there isn't a war. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're like, okay, well, 
this guy who's teaching me has never been to combat and he's trying to tell me what combat's like. It's like, all right, well, that's a great assault. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now people at West Point have all been to combat multiple, multiple times teaching our cadets, teaching students what it's like. Yeah. Well, God, you better pay attention to that. You know what I mean? Cause you're going to go to, to combat as well. And, uh, and it was interesting because a lot of my commanders, as I went through the military, they would ask me, you know, as a young lieutenant, like, Jason, what, what's combat like? What was it like? What did yeah. you do? You know, captains and majors and lieutenant colonels asking me what the right answer was because mm. they never, they don't know. They've never been there before. And that was an interesting sort of switch, you know, uh, as things moved forward in my career. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've, I've drawn parallels to this before in the past, but especially somebody who played football and then, you know, served as well that idea and that mindset of preparing for war and preparing for a game is I, I could see a lot of parallels being there mm-hmm. as far as you're constantly training, you're put in, in your heart and soul into being prepared and ready for the game. Um, but for the people who weren't in a, you know, pre pre nine 11, I'm sure it was almost like being on a practice squad. Like you're like, uh, oh, something might happen. I might get called up, but probably not going to happen. But then eventually, you know, your number's called and then you're a starter. You know you're going to go into combat. Like that mindset, that switch, I'm sure is just completely different. Um, and so is there a lot of parallels there for you, especially with like, do you feel like your mentality was there because you had some training and and, and were on a football team and understood that team mentality, leadership, and, and just being prepared for combat? No question. You know, um, that experience prepared me and I think everybody on the team for going to combat because um, you're working together on a team. You're putting the mission first, you know, then the team, then your teammates, and then yourself all the way at the bottom. You know, you're fighting for the person to your left and to your right. You're training with them day and night, whether it's in the weight room, out on the practice field, the conditioning battles, you're getting to know them intimately and you're learning to love them, you know, and um, you're building bonds that are just kind of un- unbreakable, mm-hmm. you know, and, and when you get to your, when you get to the military, when you get to your team, you know, you realize like what I had at West Point in army football, I want to replicate here because I know it works. And, um, you learn basically the social intelligence that you learn through that experience you can bring with you as you're leading other people, as you're trying to command and build a team and bring everybody together. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, those lessons are invaluable. I'm curious. So what um, led you to want to volunteer for special forces selection then? You know, um, you're always curious to see where your boundaries are. You're always curious to see where your limitations are, what, what you can do. And again, I was never a guy that was like, I'm going to be a Ranger. I'm going to be a Green Beret. And that's mm-hmm. how it's going to be. I was always looking for the next adventure. You know, I was always looking for something interesting and fun to do. Um, early on in my life, I was, uh, I guess, a self-proclaimed story collector. So I, I wanted to get more stories than anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was kind of a selfish way of, of being ambitious and driving me to succeed. You know, when I was young, I remember at Christmas time, 
all of my uncles were sitting around a Christmas table, my dad included, and they were all kind of telling stories and having a good time. And they were telling stories about, you know, business or work or Vietnam or chasing girls or whatever. And, and I remember I wanted to engage. I wanted to tell my own story. I wanted to, to be at the table, but I couldn't because I had nothing. I had nothing to say, nothing to bring, nothing interesting. And at that young age, you know, I said to myself, whispered to myself, you know, Jason, one day you're going to have more stories than all these guys. You know, and I'm going to live my life that I'm going to collect stories. And so most of my young life, you know, when I was faced with a decision, I would say to myself, will this be a good story? If it has the potential to be one, I'm going to do it. And oftentimes that led me into some pretty hilarious, you know, shenanigans and you know, situations. And I didn't mind it because it was going to be a hilarious story at some point. Mm-hmm. And I even looked at it like if it was a terrible, terrible experience. And in the moment, I was like, this sucks so bad. I would think to myself, one day it'll be funny for, for everybody else. <laughs> because the worse ex- experience it is for you, the better story it is for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to really hear oh, how much of a badass you are and how amazing you are. They want to hear your stories of being vulnerable and falling on your face and doing something stupid or getting into trouble or whatever because it makes them feel better about themselves and it, and it, and it you know, it bonds you together yeah. because you're being vulnerable, you know, and you're saying, you know what, um, I'm a normal guy. I'm, I'm sharing this experience with you and and uh, let's be friends, you know. That's pretty spot on because I think Dan can relate to this, but I definitely live my life cliche but in the moment like i'm always thinking like is this going to create same thing a cool story to look back on when i'm 60 70 years old and someone be like did you get in trouble did you do this i'm like i've done everything like i've been in every situation and i think dan thinks similar from us growing up together along those lines too yeah there's there's a lot of a lot of stories to tell and most of them i hold them close to my chest though because <laughs> the same thing is like I don't want to embarrass myself or, you know, make fun of myself, which I guess, you know, that's the best part. Well, usually when I get around like my military buddies and stuff like that, it's easy for those stories to come out and it just makes sense. But, you know, around a lot of my current coworkers and everything, I end up holding a lot of those stories to my chest because I'm like, they won't get it. Right. You know, you gotta be smart about what you say and how comfortable everybody is. Everybody else is with that stuff. But that falls under um, the NSFW. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, well, to your point, you know, I, I lived my life like that early on. And then I realized, you know, I was getting trophies and accolades and awards and things like that. And, and you know, life isn't just about that. It's about people. And it's about mm-hmm. the journey that you take with those people. And I realized it's about, you know, being selfish about being selfless. So helping other people achieve their goals and dreams. You know, that's when I feel the best about myself and that's when I'm the happiest. So to your point, what made me join the Green Berets? Um, I'll start out with, with joining the Rangers. You know, I would become a Ranger. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, uh, my close friend, Andy Reese, who was once part of Mission Six Zero, he and I were at OBC together at Fort Sill. And we had a Ranger uh, instructor. This is just before 9-11 came to um, talk to our our, uh, our group, our class. And he was like, you know, artillery guys don't have a great track record at Ranger School. There's there's a high attrition rate. You know, so we're going to take the uh, pre-Ranger training very seriously. And, um, you know, only only the best are going to be able to go to Ranger School and talk about Ranger School and all this stuff. And 
And I remember leaving the, the meeting thinking, oh, okay, fine. Like, I'm not interested in any way about going to ranger school. But Andy, he was fired up, man. He was bouncing off the walls. And he was like, dude, I'm going to go. We're going to have a blast. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> and we had to wake up at like 4 a.m. and go to this field the next day for pre-ranger training. Mm. And I knew it was going to be a smoke session, you know. And I didn't want any, anything to do with it. Really nothing to do with it. But Andy did. You know, and we played football together and he was a good friend of mine. I was like, damn it. I'm like, if Andy's going to do it, I got to do it too. Like, I can't back out. I can't be the guy who doesn't do it. And so I'm like, all right, I'll go. You know, and so um, there were about like 100 guys that showed up for pre-ranger training the next morning at 4 a.m. Of those 100 guys, not one of them was named Andy Reese. And so he didn't show up. And so I was the guy. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, he convinces me to go. He doesn't even show up. And of course we get our, you know, our bag smoked for like two and a half hours that mm-hmm. day and uh, just drenched in sweat. I walked back to the barracks and I'm, I'm banging on Andy's door and he, and he opens the door in his boxer shorts, you know, crust in his eyes. I'm like, dude, where, where were you, man? He's like, oh man, 4 a.m. came so, so soon. I was so tired. I couldn't get up, man. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? I was like, well, I can't quit now. I showed up for the first day. He's like, yeah, man. And he just kind of shut the door. And so I finished um, pre-ranger training. It was like six months, you know, by the way, of pre-ranger training. Um, But I learned a lot. And we went down from 100 guys to the final week. We had 12 guys. Wow. And uh, of those 12 guys, nine went to ranger school uh, and three graduated. And Mm. I was one of the three guys that graduated. That's crazy. And um, I – I loved it, man. I enjoyed ranger school. Um, I enjoyed every second of it. It was very hard, you know, but you learned a lot and, um, you know, you're around some good people. And it was really my first time experiencing the real military. Hmm. You know, it was experiencing the military where I wasn't identified as a football player. or I wasn't a shit bag, right? Because mm-hmm. I was a football player. I was looked at like, oh, Van Camp, he's a bigger dude. He played football. That's a good thing. He's social. Like, you know, he, he can talk to us, you know, he, he's emotionally intelligent. He takes everything in stride, you know, and I was kind of one of the, one of the guys and that was awesome to see. And, uh, I graduated true, true blue all the way through. I was lucky, you know, it's kind of your team gets you your go. You don't get mm-hmm. yourself your go, you know, sort of thing. And, uh, and immediately I went to uh, Korea and, uh, the Green Beret situation was very similar. My good friend, Jesse Waters, we played football together also right after we got back from a deployment. He was like, let's try out for the Green Berets. And, uh, and we did. And I made it and he didn't. And, um, and uh, the qualification course, special force qualification course, it's fantastic, man. Mm. It was the best course I've ever been to. A uh, gentleman's course. It's uh, you know, very different than what you experience in the military where there's a lot of yelling and hurting cats and forcing you to do things. You know, in the Q course, it was like, we expect you to be here at this time, you know, in this uniform, and this is what we expect you to to, uh, to do, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to wake you up. Just be here. And if you're not here, then, you know, you don't make it. Yeah. And that was a pretty cool um, shift, paradigm shift, I guess. So I'm, I'm intrigued because I know, I know what the path is for enlisted in the Q course. Is it exactly the same for officers or is there, cause I know like typically you go through specialized training for like, say you're going to be an engineer or the team medic or whatever the case may be. Um, but what, is it a similar path for officers or a little bit different? 
Um, it, it changes a lot, you know, uh, year to year. But I'll tell you what it was like when I was there. It was very, very similar, meaning um, we all started out with phase one, which was selection. It was about a month. And uh, from there, you would go to phase two, which is SUT, small unit tactics. And that was a couple months, I think maybe two months. And then from there, uh, you go to phase three, which is your uh, MOS specific training. I was an 18 alpha, an officer. So we went to officer training, which was basically classroom type stuff. And every now and again, we would go somewhere like to D.C. or, you know, to Florida, Tampa or someplace like that for additional training. Um, but it was, it was basically, you, um, just went to class every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, phase four is Robin's age and that's about a month, you know, the role playing scenario in North Carolina. Uh, phase five is language school. I served a mission for my church, church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in St. Petersburg, Russia. So I was already a fluent Russian speaker. I was oh, three, wow. three on the DLPT. Wow. And so that was pretty awesome for me. Um, uh, language school. And then phase six is, uh, Sears school, you know, and, and, uh, that was our last thing that we did. And, and they time it up where at the end of Sears school, you know, you get liberated from this camp number four or camp number three or whatever it was called at the time. And they raised the American flag. And then, you know, you've sort of, you've graduated from the Q course. And the next thing that you do is, you know, uh, a couple of days later, you, on your green beret for the first time which mm -hmm. is just pretty special that's awesome yeah it's it's such a, a long process too like you you even just talking about it you know it takes a while to talk about the entire yeah selection and cue course i don't think people realize like how much time effort learning that goes into that entire process that, All that you training. have to be like the level of commitment to stay through the entire Q course is, is pretty special. But I, I do wonder, like, I know, especially during the harder phases, like through the initial selection, and then it's the same with any other, you know, special operations things. The attrition rate is incredibly low, but in the Q course, how's the attrition rate? Is it pretty good? Cause you have, you know, all the guys with you kind of going through it together and you've already made it through kind of the hard, well, maybe not the hardest part, but one of the hardest parts. You know, I, I don't know the specific numbers offhand, but from my experience, I'll tell you that selection, there was a pretty high attrition rate mm. of guys getting through. Uh, phase two, kind of once you're there at phase two, the attrition rate was, was significantly lower, but it still seemed like there were guys quitting, mm -hmm. you know, um, for various reasons or, or getting kicked out for, for things. Once you got to phase three, at least for the officers, the attrition rate was, was very, very low. Only maybe one or two guys, you know, didn't, didn't make it once you got to phase three. Phase four, Robin Sage, I feel like everybody passed. Phase five, language school, you know, you got a few people that, that didn't make the cut. And then phase six at Sears School, um, I feel like everybody made it through phase six. You know, so that's... I, you know, just from my experience, I don't know the numbers, you know, and I don't know how things have changed over the years because this was, gosh, man, almost 20 years ago when I did this. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy how time flies, you know, but um, that's how it was when I went through. I think it's just incredible to think back to what you're saying with, you know, going through Ranger school and doing that, how there's only 3% of people that make it through. 
well for that specifically yeah. like going through pre-ranger and everything and yeah i've re- i've reflected even on yeah i went through a similar thing obviously enlisted but you have i can't count the number of people who had ranger contracts even in basic training with me who throughout the phases kept dropping and i think i probably started with you know when our basic training company i don't know 30 40 something like that by the time I graduated RIP, I think we only had three people from our company in basic training that made it to a Ranger Battalion because everybody kept dropping out or failing. Wow. And then in Ranger School, it's the same thing. I think, you know, for the people who finally get to the schoolhouse, so, you know, everybody has their own sort of pre-Ranger or ways to weed out people initially to see if they can even make it to Ranger School. But I think even in Ranger School, the attrition rate's like 30 or 40%. Jeez. Um, it's, it's pretty low, so... Um, and that's the intent of it is to push people to their limits to see if they're going to be a good leader when really the deck is stacked against them, when they have no sleep, no food, um, they're physically exhausted, completely drained, don't know what they're going to do. And can they rally their group around them? Just like Jason said, it's it's not you that gets through Ranger School. It's the people around around you that get you through. Mm-hmm. This is... Um kind of an, an offhand question, but I'm curious for people listening that might want to know some of your experiences overseas. Um, but what was that like personally for you and maybe even for your family, you know, growing up as a member of the church and then, you know, going overseas and being in combat, you know, on three rotations to Iraq, what was that experience like for you? It was, uh, Gosh, what's the best word to use to describe what that experience was? I guess powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother died when I was younger, and uh, she never got to see me go to combat. It would have, it would have killed her anyway. She would have been so worried and you know, pulling her hair out because, um, you know, she she loved me and all of her kids very very much. My dad, it's kind of a crack up. I remember. He served during the Vietnam era, but he served in France. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm not sure how that kind of a weird situation, you know, you never volunteer for anything, especially in the military. You know that, you know, that's bad news. It's common sense. My dad volunteered in basic training for something and, and uh, they sent him to France to work on a state of the art new technology called computers. Oh, wow. <laughs> <So> he, <laughs> he was stationed outside of Paris working on computers for his his time. Yeah. Um, but I was, uh, I, I, I left Korea, um, went to Fort Campbell, mm-hmm. 101st Airborne mm-hmm. Division. It was there for like three days before they sent me over to join my new unit. And, in, in uh, they had just crossed the border, um, between Kuwait and Iraq and I was going to join them. Wow. And uh, you were hearing all this stuff. I remember a buddy of mine, you know, there was an Iraqi missile that hit his unit and he lost his leg already. A West Point guy named John Fernandez, played lacrosse, great dude. You know, and things were, you know, you don't know what to expect, man. You're going to combat. You're going to, this is going to be a battle. You're fighting the Iraqi army. You're fighting these guys. And, you know, there's missiles being shot at you. There's gas, you know, like, who knows, chemical warfare. You have no idea. Mm-hmm. And so you're worried. You're, you know, you're stressed out. And um, we flew from Fort Campbell to 
BWA Airport, Baltimore, Washington International Airport. And while we were there, they gave us uh, about 100 of us or so a hotel room to chill in for about six hours. And I went to the hotel and I, I called my dad. And I was worried. I was stressed out. I wanted to get some advice from him. You know, like, you know, like, what, don't know what I'm getting myself into. You know, and I remember calling him up. And I'm like, hey, Pop. He's like, hey. I'm like, I'm at the airport. He's like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm, I'm going to Iraq. You know, like, told you that. You know, and he's like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, um, you know, I don't know what to say. I'm going to combat in just a few hours. You know, and I was kind of hoping for some words of wisdom, some profound knowledge or, or you know, something from my dad or even, or even I love you, son, something like that, you know. And he goes, well, Jay, just keep your head down. And then he hung up the phone. And I'm just <laughs> like, okay. All right, Pop. That's your you. advice, huh? <laughs> that's, that's the advice. I'll keep my head down, you know. And uh, I think about that from time to time. And it wasn't because my dad didn't love me. It was just because that's just how he is, you know. Mm -hmm. He's kind of a gruff guy. And, uh, you know, he's, he's not a super emotional guy. But that's what he told me. And uh, and that was what the last words of advice I got before I head out to uh, uh, landed in Iraq. Gotcha. You know, it's it's funny. I I, I told the, the full story on here, I think, before. But I, I didn't tell my mom what I did. For I think my first three deployments, I just lied to her flat out. Didn't tell her where I was going. Well, told her a little bit about where I was going, how long I would be gone generally, but I didn't tell her what I did. And it took until I think, like I said, maybe my fourth deployment. And then I t finally told her because when I joined, she told me not to do anything that was going to put me in danger. <laughs> and of course, I end up at Second Ranger Battalion. And so, how do you tell your mom like, "Hey, uh, I know you." told me not to do anything dangerous, but you know, I'm on the front line, kicking in doors, like mm -hmm. chasing high value targets day in and day out three, four times a day. How do you tell her that? I couldn't tell her. So <laughs> I'm sure she still lost some sleep, but same that probably would have been for your mom is like my mom, it probably would have killed her if I told her in the first deployment, what I was going to be doing. Well, that, that's a, uh, that's similar with green Brazo, right? They have the same for you, Jason, same kind of mission where you're chasing high value targets kicking indoors on a daily basis? Well, it's, it's similar. The way that I describe it, uh, you know, kind of to civilians is, is like this. Um, Rangers and SEALs as well, they're door kickers. You know, they'll, they'll kick in those doors. The Green Berets will go into a foreign country. We'll find um, foreign nationals, indigenous forces that we can train mm -hmm. you know, to standard. And then we, we train them to kick the door down. Mm -hmm. and the door down and we follow in behind them as instructors. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. The, uh, the idea, or, you know, this is probably way oversimplifying it, but uh, I think the idea is, is force multiplication being the force, force multiplier. So taking your combat ability and everything's the knowledge that we have as American forces and instilling it in a foreign force that we have an alliance with and training them up so that they can, you know, then fight their own enemy on their own home turf. Have you ever seen videos of some of the Somali soldiers kicking indoors? <laughs> they just go oh, right in there. <laughs> you, you see some of our videos of us of us training the Iraqis. You know, it's like doing jumping jacks or yep. training how to shoot weapons. It's like it's crazy. Calisthenics. Have you, have you seen like you know? I'm sure you, you can Google some or YouTube some videos of that. But it's 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 
it's crazy. You you laugh your ass off for days watching this stuff. Yeah. Um, but you're right. See, the thing is, like, we're gonna leave eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, and then and then what? You know, you need the people there in that country to take care of their own business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do as Green Berets. We we do exactly that. That's cool. Yeah, and I, I you know, going back to. <laughs> what Bo was saying and I, I think I've, I've said it before is you got to think a lot of the the people the local population stuff and especially in a lot of these third world countries they're not physically fit they're not they don't know you know how to move their body as much because they don't play sports they don't do a lot of things like that so like the the hand-eye coordination and the ability to just know where your spatial awareness is and your where your body is in space just isn't there for a lot of them and you're going to piss off a lot of countries. No, 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 no. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, to be more like, I I guess I'm I'm trying to give understanding to people to understand, like it's not that they are not capable. It's that they do not have the skills going into it. That would make them really proficient that's with not, that's doing not a lot culture. of these like yeah it's just not just not in the culture it's not they're not trained for it like i said they don't play the sports and i'm not saying it's across the board i'm just saying in general like uh, the american population or even a lot of the western world is so focused in you know entertainment mm-hmm. and dancing and sports and doing all these other things and and it's just not as much the case um in a lot of third world countries because they don't have access to it they don't have the ability they don't have the funding the financing whatever the case may be so just, you know, the people aren't aren't prepared for it. And so that's why you see a lot of the, I guess, the, the funny videos. But um, I'm sure it's really difficult as somebody who knows what it's like to train good people and then trying to teach the simple things, literally the crawl, walk, run, even to like the, the inchworm level <laughs> crawl, walk, run approach. Yeah, and that's not to say they were all terrible and laughable. I mean, some of them were, were very athletic and you know and very capable. And you know, as a counterpoint, there's something called the Haji squat, in which a lot of uh, you know third world countries, you know, the people there are able to do. It's basically to to sit down on your feet. And they used to laugh at us mm-hmm. because yeah. the Americans we couldn't do that. We couldn't even get close to doing that. And that's just something that's in their culture, you know, to sit down to eat or, or whatever that their uh, bodies have adjusted to over the years. Yeah. But for us, it was just like, our body doesn't go that way. Yeah. Man. yeah. <laughs> Especially for hours at a time. Like it's, it's kind of impressive for how long somebody could, could sit, you know, on their feet for literally hours at a time. I just, I, I'm, I agree. Like, I, I think I tried doing it for some time and I was like, dude, I couldn't do this for more than 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to kind of go forward from there, Jason, after you left the army, what was personally your transition like? And did you kind of have an ultimate plan of where you were going to go with your life? So my transition was unique and I did not have a plan and I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. When I was on my last J set to Mali, Africa, in 2010, I got really sick. Uh, we were out training the Echelon Tactique Inter-Arme Forces, and we were uh, training them to, you know, uh, defeat the AQIM, Al-Qaeda in the lands of Maghreb, and Touareg rebels that were essentially riding down on horseback across the Sahara Desert, and they were 
attacking villages and towns and killing people and raping women and mm. forcing people into Sharia law and the whole thing. And so we were out in the middle of nowhere uh, training them. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of embedded also with a local indigenous tribe. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, it was like National Geographic. I oh, mean, wow. Women weren't wearing tops. Men had spears. You know, it was crazy, right? It was straight out of National Geographic. And we were out there for a few days, and I, and I got really sick. And uh, my medics were really kind of monitoring me and watching me, and they were getting worried because there are some of the craziest diseases and parasites and things you've ever heard of. Mm. Most you haven't heard of in, in mm-hmm. Africa. You know, there were two guys on a special forces, ODA operational detachment, alpha green beret team that were there before us in Mali. They got spinal meningitis. You know, there was one guy a few years ago, that got uh, river blindness where a parasite, you know, found its way into his eye and ate away his, his eyeball. Jeez. You know, just like crazy stuff. And, you know, I was sick and delirious and my medics were like, hey, dude, we don't want to take any risks, man. We're worried about you. You've been kind of in and out for a couple hours now. I, I really want to send you back to the embassy. And, um, you know, I just I said, OK, cool. I mean, we weren't like in combat or anything like that. So I went back to the embassy. My guys took me back there and um, I was knocked out for a day or a day and a half. And I, I woke up. I felt OK. I went back to my team. We finished up our deployment. It was only a few more days until we were done. And the night I got back to the States, uh, I met my girlfriend and uh, a lot of the guys on the team, we went out and uh, I got back home to my house and I woke up in the middle of the night and there were police officers and firefighters and paramedics, probably about nine of them standing around my bed. Middle of the night, and I was just like, what the hell is going on? You know, like, why are you guys in my house? You know, and they're like, you need to calm down. I'm like, you know, I need to calm down. Like, you need to get the hell out of my house, you know? And they're like, well, you know, we're here because you had a seizure. I'm like, oh, what wow. are you talking about? And, and uh, I noticed my girlfriend, she was bawling, crying in the corner of the room. And, uh, and, the, and, I, and I knew something had happened. Something was serious, right? I felt really sore. I bit my tongue. So like my tongue was kind of, you know, bleeding a little bit and mm-hmm. everything kind of hurt. And I'm like, we're going to ask you some questions. I'm like, okay, like, what's your name? I'm like, you know, Jason. They're like, where are you? I'm at my house. Okay. What state are you in? And, um, then the information just wasn't there in yeah. my brain. Like I was in Colorado, but I was like searching for Colorado, but it just wasn't available. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, okay, um, do you remember going to Africa? And I was like, I've never been to Africa in my life. Wow. And they're just like, okay, you know, we're going to take you to the hospital. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, you know, there's some issues here. And they gave me a bunch of medicine and I fell asleep pretty quickly, you know, and I woke up in the hospital and, and, uh, and they asked me those questions again. And I was like, yeah, I live in Colorado. And I was just on a J set with my team to Africa and, asked me a bunch of questions that I remembered and I was just like, what happened? Like, well, you had a seizure. I'm like, why? We don't know. You know, so I went back to group headquarters and I was like, you know, this happened. I'm a little worried. Why did it happen? Did I catch something? Like Mm -hmm. what's going on? 
And they're like, we don't know. We'll send you up to get some tests done. And I went to some of the top neurologists in Colorado and they were just like, we don't know. You know, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, you know, sort of thing. And and my, my the group was like, well, we'll keep it under wraps. We'll monitor you. If anything happens, let us know. Uh, sometimes people just have one seizure in there and that's it. That's all they have, you know. So I was like, okay. And uh, I started having more and more seizures like every few months. And I would tell everybody what was going on. And eventually they were like, well, you know, we, we can't deploy you. You know, you can't shoot guns. You can't jump out of a, any aircraft. Um, they're like, hell, you can't even drive to work. Hmm. You know, so I had to call up my dad and um, I flew him out to Colorado to, to stay with me in my house and drive me to and from work every day, mm-hmm. you know, which was awesome because we got to spend some time together, but it was, it was tough for him to you know disrupt his life and everything. Yeah. And, um, you know, I went uh, and got my MBA at BYU and still having seizures and and I went to Fort Bragg to Yusufik after I got my MBA and um, still having seizures. And my first day um, at work, I had a seizure at my desk in front of everybody. I fell on the ground. I was shaking the whole thing. And my boss was like, what's up with you, dude? Like, why is this happening? And eventually they they uh, told me that I had to leave the military and they were going to medically retire me. And so that's how my career ended. And uh, – you know, because that happened, essentially, I uh, asked myself the same question all veterans ask. Like, what's next? What mm-hmm. do I do with myself? You know, mm-hmm. now what? what? What's really interesting is I had no idea of that background of you. And I have a history of seizures. And um, you're literally repeating my whole life of developing my first seizure at the age of 10. And basically then, I think it was... Uh, I don't know. It, it was almost every year I'd have one and and my parents couldn't figure out what was going on. And I think at the age of 16, I lost my driver's license for a whole year because I had one like in a McDonald's and I was so embarrassed every time I had them because I'd always have them in public. I had one in like junior high and eighth grade and it kept going on all the way through high school. Well, I didn't find out the reason why I basically they diagnosed it with like photosensitive seizures. And they basically figured out that it was due to all the concussions I had as a kid. I had like three bad concussions all the way up to like about 10 years old. And I think then they put me on like, you know, medication where I take a pill every day. And um, they're like, you're just going to take it for the rest of your life. And I remember when I moved to Orange County when I was like 21, I went to a neurologist. So it took from age 10 to 21 from seeing specialists and neurologists for them to finally figure out you've got a cyst or a little blood clot in the back of your brain where it looks like you probably had an impact. It's very similar with football players. And so that's it's interesting to hear your kind of side of that story and for me to kind of just, you know, meet someone else that has that same thing to where I was in fear of like this is the rest of my life now where I just got to take a pill every day and that's what it is. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, we have a very similar experience there. Mm-hmm. It's scary, you know. And, um, yep. Because you can't control it. You know, I, I remember, you know, just like you get that feeling of it coming on. It's sort of like that intense feeling of deja vu. For me, it was always a feeling like That's I was about to remember something important. And it was on the verge of, you know, on the tip of my tongue. It was, it was right there 
and and then as soon as it was about to reveal itself, whatever that secret was, I would be out. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, you, you kind sometimes of sometimes you smell something. You know. It's it's when you said you're forgetful when you're talking to, you know, the the paramedics and all that. It's very similar in a sense to where you get that euphoric feeling. Like I remember right before I was basically going to have like a full on convulsion, like breakthrough, you know, where you're on the ground and you just don't know what happens. It almost feels like you're falling asleep. Like I remember people be asking me a question or talking to me and I would zone out like for like a split second and I'd feel my highs roll in the back of my head like I was falling. And then all of a sudden it was like you wake up and already it's like five minutes have elapsed and everyone's around you. Yeah. So. Yeah. And neurology, it seems like, man, it's just a, such a pseudoscience because mm-hmm. they never give you an answer. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe you were poisoned in combat. Maybe, you know, you got some bad shots. Maybe you've got a lesion. Maybe you have a blood clot. Maybe you have a parasite. You know, crazy. So are you a medication now then? Top neurologist. Give, give me a degree in neurology. I could, <laughs> I could be that guy. Right. You know? So do you, uh, are you like me where you have to take a, like a pill once a day then? Uh, yeah, they gave me pills. Um, and I would take them. And the first set of pills they gave me, uh, just really changed my, um, my personality, my attitude. Mm-hmm. Like I was really, I got really depressed, mm. you know, and really just kind of lethargic. And um, I realized I'm like, that's not me. That's not who I want to be. And like, I don't want to take these pills anymore. So they gave me some other pills, and those pills get put, like totally put me in la la land. Yeah, you know, remember um, my next door neighbor? He's a talker, you know. And when he would come to my house, he would just talk, and I'd be like, get, you know, like you're a nice guy, but like. Let's wrap this thing up. Like, get out of here, you know? And I remember I, I took a pill uh, and he, whatever reason, just came over and he was talking. And I remember looking at my watch and there was like hours that went by and I was just staring at him. Just like, wow, man. Like, keep, you know, like, this is so interesting. <laughs> like, keep talking, 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 talking. And he finally left after like three hours. And I remember I was like enthralled. And I was like, this is not correct. Like, this is not right. Like, mm-hmm. this guy was not enthralling. He was not interesting. He was not entertaining. You know, this is not me. You know, yeah. I, I cannot do this any longer. So I tried a number of different things. Uh, and I finally got to a, a point where I can manage it pretty well, I think. Right? So that's kind of where I'm at right now. Oh, wow. So you're not, you're not on anything then right now. I found um, like one that I'm on that it doesn't um, it doesn't really alter. I would say the only side effect I have is sometimes you you forget what words you're going to say. Like it takes you an extra second or two to really think of how to sense a or how to structure a sentence. Um, but other than that, that was it. I didn't notice like anything with other side effects, and so I've been on that. And that's kind of the scary thing is with you know if you have epilepsy or you have seizures or a history of it is you just don't know when you're going to have one. So like me, I'm trying to almost prevent it. And so it's kind of like, I kind of have to deal with it and take it. Cause I noticed my body's gotten so used to it that if I go four or five days without a pill, I start to feel that sensation come on. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's super interesting. You know, I, I, I don't like, 
my my grandma has seizures and i remember growing up with them and everything and uh having to react to them um and all that so i i I couldn't imagine honestly um being either of you it's it's got to be scary i'm sure i mean i'm sure it becomes like almost numbing and and not saying that it's normal but you almost get used to it Mm -hmm. i guess in a sense but for me, and I'm sure for anybody else who's never experienced one, I I just couldn't imagine it. Yeah. Well, um, so obviously that was kind of the first part of, you know, your personal transition. And, you know, after that, what was your motivation in starting up your company, Warrior Rising? Where did that come from? You know, uh, so when I got out, I, you know, I said to myself, now what, what am I going to do with myself? And I looked around and I thought, you know, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. So my mom used to always tell me when I was younger and, uh, and my, a lot of my friends had started businesses and they were, they were fairly successful. One guy had already sold a business for 20 million. Jesse, that same guy that, you know, um, didn't make it through Green Beret training, right? Yeah. Uh, to selection cause he got arrested. And, uh, I thought, you know, if these guys can do it, I can do it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I started Mission Six Zero, um, combining things that I was knowledgeable about and passionate about. And from the success of Mission Six Zero, I started Warrior Rising. And Warrior Rising started um, when I was in Oakland doing an event with the Oakland Raiders. I brought a lot of guys out to my team. You guys might have heard this story before. I'll repeat it again. Um, injured vets, combat vets, guys that um, would love to be back on a team again and just the camaraderie and guys that have really interesting stories and and uh, they share their stories about overcoming adversity and resiliency with our client. It's powerful for the client. It's cathartic for them to share these stories. And, and uh, we had a big event, big team building event with the Raiders. And after it was all said and done, we were kind of celebrating and just kind of letting our hair down, kicking our heels off, you know, so to speak. And having a good time. And, uh, you know, I'm an officer, you know, it's been ingrained in me to make sure my guys are taken care of. And so I was kind of just going around asking guys, how is everything? Can I do anything for you? You know, what's going on? And uh, we were all kind of sitting around together and uh, guys were saying, you know, Jay, we get a large disability check from the government. I was awesome. There's guys that tell me I I get uh, charities that take me hunting and fishing. I'm like, that's awesome. One guy was like, I had a nonprofit build a home for me, handicap accessible, and that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was thinking, okay, everything's everything's set. You know, people are taking care of these guys, and they were pretty quiet. You know, and they said collectively, um, you know, Jason is not that awesome. Well, it sounds pretty good to me, man. What's going on? They're like, well, you know, first off, we never asked for this stuff. You know, we don't feel like we've earned it. You know, mm-hmm. and it's it's awkward. It's uncomfortable for us because. You know, we always aspire to do more with our lives. We want to serve other people and now everybody serves us and it's weird. I'm like, well, tell me more about that. And I said, well, you know, we go hunting and fishing. We love hunting and fishing. And we have one good day. You know, it doesn't help us have a good life. Yeah. And then as a matter of fact, we come back from hunting and fishing and life is worse because we'd rather be hunting and fishing all the time. And the guy that had a home built for him is like, you know what? I, I never asked anybody for this home. You know, I don't feel like I've earned this home or deserve this home. Um, I kind of wanted to build or, or buy a home myself because that pride of ownership and I've, I've accomplished something. But now I've, I sit outside uh, my house 
you know, sit on my front porch and I smoke weed all day because I don't want to go inside this house. Mm-hmm. You know, it's counterproductive for me. Okay. You know, and I said, you know, guys, I'm going to give you some tough love, you know, like, well, what are you going to do about it? And they said, well, Jason, uh, what it comes down to is finding purpose again. It was the military purpose was, was very clear. Now that I'm no longer in the military, I don't know what to do. I don't have a purpose. And again, I said, well, what are you going to do about it? And they said, well, what did you do about it, dude? Like, what did you do to find your purpose again? And nobody really ever asked me that before. And I thought about it and I was like, I guess, you know, starting Mission Six Zero is my purpose now because I get a chance to create something powerful, build something powerful. I get a chance to hire you guys to the team. I get a chance to pay you guys and build the company, add value to the client and, and you know, make money for my family and everything else. And, and it's just fun, you mm-hmm. know, and I get to bring you guys back out on the team and we get to be, uh, you know, uh, together again. And the guys were like, you know, we want to have that same experience as well, Jason. I'm like, well, what do you mean? They're like, well, we want to start a business too. And I said, who wants to start a business? And all of them wanted to start a business. Oh, wow. And I said, you all do. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, well, do you guys even have ideas? And they all had ideas, a lot of ideas. I said, well, let's talk about your ideas. What do you want to do? And we started talking. And, and uh, most of the ideas that I heard were terrible ideas, guys. You know, like bad. <laughs> Just dumb, dumb ideas. And I was like, ah, oh, guys, listen, don't do that. You know, and they're like, why not? I'm like, well, because of this, that, and the other thing. And you know, somebody else already did that or the margins are too low or, you know, too many competitors or whatever it might be. And the guys would, would thank me. They're like, thank you so much. You know, I, I didn't think about that. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I, I saved this guy years of his life. I saved his life savings because, you know, he's a Green Beret or SEAL or Ranger or Marine, somebody who knows the definition of hard work and who would, you know, fight to the death to see their business succeed. Mm-hmm. No matter what, you would have wasted their time, wasted their resources in, in something that ultimately would have failed. I like I'm doing a great service for this person by telling them not to do, not to pursue this business. And some of the guys had really good ideas for businesses. And I was like, man, that sounds awesome. You should totally do that. And they're like, really? I'm like, oh yeah, man, that's a great idea. I'm like, okay, well, you know, will you give me some money? I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, can you give me 50,000 bucks, man? And and maybe you can move to Tampa Bay with me and we can kiss, kick this thing off. And I was like, well, I'm not going to give you any money and I'm certainly not going to move to Tampa Bay with you. And like, well, why not? You know, you said it was good. I'm like, well, yeah, but you're going to have to show me your business plan, your operating agreement, your SWOT analysis, your pro formas. You're going to have to do all the research, man. And then maybe I'll consider getting involved on some level. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, you know, if you're going to start a business, you got to have those things mm-hmm. and other things. I'm like, well, how do I get that stuff? And I'm like, well, you're a smart dude, man. Figure it out. Well, how did you do it, Jason? I'm like, well, I, you know, I went to business school and I learned about a lot of this stuff and I did a lot of work on my own, you know? And they're like, well, um, can you just give me your stuff and I'll copy it? And I'm like, nah, man, it's not how it works. Like, you don't have to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, well, how? I'm like, bro, come on. Like, guys, YouTube some stuff. Figure it out. And I just kind of left it like that, like some tough love, like I always like like to give. And we had a great rest of the night, and we all partied, and you know, stayed out late. And um, I went home, and this conversation just kind of replayed in my mind for months, again and again and again. And I realized that these guys were trying to find their purpose again. They were they were asking for help. They wanted help, and I was I was just a little too hard on them. 
you know, and I, as I said, I like the tough love, but that was a little, little too, too rough for these guys. And, and I said, I, I'm in a position to do something to help these guys out. And I should do something to help these guys out. And uh, if a veteran wants to start a business, I want to be there for him. And I looked around the landscape and I saw a lot of incubators out there. I saw a, a couple other nonprofits that were, were trying to start, you know, help veterans start businesses. But I just didn't like what I was seeing. You know, like <laughs> veterans giving office space. I mean, that's cool and all, but how are you really helping a vet start a business? Mm-hmm. You know, incubators up the yin yang, you know, going to different universities. And that's great and fantastic. But I didn't think they were really helping veterans the way they need to be helped. And so I got together with Joe Hilton and uh, Ryan Miller, you know, and we founded Warrior Rising together. And it's uh, gone through a couple iterations throughout the years, not dramatic shifts, but, you know, doing market research, listening to our, our entrepreneurs, our cohorts about how we can improve the product. And we got to the point where we're at today, where um, we feel very strongly about uh, what we're doing, how we're doing it and how we're serving the veteran community. Yeah, it's it, it, it's so awesome and it, there's a lot to unpack there and i do want to talk about a few things but at the very beginning when you talked about you know there are so many opportunities and i i'll i'll use opportunities very lightly there's a lot of things and opportunities out there for veterans but none of them there's very few of them that actually provide purpose or can get a veteran on their two feet or get a veteran to be successful because it's all handouts. It's all just, you know, here's all this free stuff. And like you said, oftentimes it's something that people aren't really asking for or it's, and it's nobody's fault other than I think people naturally have a drive to be like, okay, this person served our country. I want to find a way to serve them. Mm -hmm. And they find what's easiest for them to do that. And whether that's building a house for them or providing a car or, taking him on a fish, fishing trip or whatever. That's excellent. That's awesome. And those experiences should continue to exist. But we've talked about it numerous times on here is, is, is there has to be something more. There can't, it, the buck can't stop at here's a trip. Here's an opportunity. Here's the thing. It's like, no, let me, you've been trained your whole life how to do one thing. You could be retrained again to do something different and be successful in it. And I think that's where programs and nonprofits like Warrior Rising are so incredible and that's the structure that needs to exist for successful nonprofits that benefit veterans. Yeah. It shouldn't be the the simple handouts, the simple just like let me give you something and and here now you can be successful. That that's not how it works. That's not how people are even driven just as a as a human. Oh, totally. You're spot on. I, I agree with you 100%. You know, there's a lot of uh, people out there that have good intentions, mm-hmm. you know, in the military, we say hua, right? So there's a lot of, a lot of hua, but not a lot of dua. Yep. You know what I mean? And they're not listening to the veterans. They're not listening to what they are saying and what they want. You know, um, we're trying to give veterans a good life, not a good day. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And let's focus on that. That's the narrative I want to talk about. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, a lot of those things, that we're talking about are just quick fixes. They're just temporary band-aids and they're great things that do help out a lot of people. I mean, a new home, a new car can really change somebody's life. But like you said, I feel like that only lasts for so long. So rather than just having a quick fix, it's like, why don't I help you start up a business where it's going to pay you out for the rest of your life as long as you have a smart business plan and you can see it through day after day. 
and you find purpose and you can grow this thing. And it's interesting. So for people listening, we're obviously part of Warrior Rising and you, you know, we came to you with our initial idea of this book that we're doing. And I got to say, and I know I can speak for Dan, that we're super thankful. Mm -hmm. And just to be a part of your guys' team, to be able to go to some of these, you know, most recent events um, that you guys had in Utah and to meet the team and the investors and people on board, I had no idea that it was such a big deal. But seeing the people involved, I would highly recommend that if there are people listening or other veterans that are interested in starting businesses or have a business startup idea already in the works, I need to contact you because I think there's a lot of whether it's you can help them or maybe you're like, hey, it's you know not for me. I think it's in their best interest to find people like you that understand their background as a veteran and can kind of point them in the right direction. So but it's cool to be a part of what you guys are doing at Warrior Rising. And we're honored to have you guys. Seriously, thanks for that amazing testimonial. It was a blast. The whole Utah trip was, was fantastic. And congratulations for for being one of the uh, one of the winners, the three winners. So yeah, it's an awesome yeah. accomplishment. I'm proud yeah. of you guys. I really am. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. And that, you, you know what's funny is is everything has almost come full circle because mm -hmm. um, I, I do want to talk about Mission Six Zero too, but we'll, we'll come to that in a second. But uh, when you were on Jordan Hillstrom's podcast, I think beginning of last year sometime, and I first heard you talk and I found you on LinkedIn and I started seeing all the things that you were posting. It honestly, you know, and I, I think your message is resonating with a lot of veterans mm -hmm. is, you know, there, there's, there's these things, these, these, these lessons that you learn in the military. And for a lot of people, including myself, I've either forgot them or I pushed them off to the side on purpose because I didn't know how to utilize that and connect with other people and that were not veterans that didn't have the same mindset that didn't understand things the same way that I did. And I picked up a lot of the messages and it, and it honestly sparked like it inspired me a little bit. And I, I got a little bit of inspiration from you, from, you know, my friend Jordan, and I started throughout all 2020 trying to figure out, you know, what can I do to reconnect with the veteran community? Mm -hmm. What can I do to better myself? What can I do to better the people around me? What can I do to make my household mo more successful? And it just kept circulating back to, I've got to tap into those previous skill sets and knowledge bases that I had from in the military and execute those in my day-to-day -day life. And I took that and used it forward and fast forward. And that's when Bo, you know, moved out here to North Carolina and he had this idea for the book. And I was like, dude, I've been trying to find a way to give back and to do something. And I was like, we've got to make a veteran book. We've got to make a veteran photo book. We've got to tell these stories because there are too many untold stories like myself because I didn't want to share it or because I thought I, you know, had a certain level of imposter syndrome, didn't think I was good enough, whatever the case may be. And I was like, there are too many people out there just like me that need to have their stories told and to need, need to see what a path to success can look like. Mm -hmm. And so when I was going through, you know, Warrior Academy and everything like that, to align my ideas to, you know, all of my military experience and kind of understand, because I've taken an entrepreneurship class in, in college, but to align that with, you know, an operations order and what, you know, you, what you learn in the military, you get fed day in and day out. It just clicked, made sense. It honestly, <laughs> I don't know how fast other people usually go from the very beginning of the academy to the end, but I felt like I cruised through it pretty quick because there was so much of it that I was just like, this makes perfect sense to me and I could just put this together 
incredibly quickly. So, um, I can't thank you and, uh, you know, applaud you for putting that together and, and the rest of the team, of course, um, because it's been so helpful and successful for me. And I know it has been to others. Mm -hmm. Much appreciated. Seriously. You guys are going to, I mean, seriously, you're on your way, right? You guys are going to be successful and, um, you're going to change a lot of people's lives for the, for the better. The, the funny thing is I think Jason will laugh at this because I'm coming into it as a civilian. But when we first got on the phone call with you in the very beginning, my mind, I'm a dreamer. So I start thinking like big ideas like, oh, we're going to go here and this person might be able to help us and connect us. I go into this meeting thinking like, oh, maybe Jason can connect us to these people. Maybe there's a grant involved like they can help us like kind of start our business up and all that. And I remember like we were talking to you and I could tell that I'm speaking to somebody that's had so much experience of talking to other veterans and other businesses where you're like, well, first off, I'm not giving you any money and <laughs> I'm not going to do this. You guys have only recorded three or four stories out of this book and you've got 70. You've got a lot of work to do. So get to the grindstone, get it done and then come talk to me. And it was like we got off the phone. And I was like, wow, like that was actually really humbling because he's right. I feel like I needed that because now I'm on a mission to be like, shit, we got to figure this whole thing out on our own. <laughs> You know, it was so cool about that. You know, like I said, I'm a tough love guy because that's what I like to hear. Give yeah. me that tough love, right? Yep. Um, but you guys did it. Three months later, you had all the interviews done. You had everything set up. It was fast. It's just like, you know, guys that work hard, you know, that have earned the right to get help, will get help. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there was a saying in Russia that says, you know, God helps those who helps who help themselves, right? And it's sort of like that's the mentality that I take. Like, I will help people with my resources and connections and networking grants and, and everything else that are willing to help themselves. Like, I'm just going to give you that little push that you need, but you're going to do all the work yourself. Yeah. And I don't want you really to give me credit for it. Say, yeah, you know, Jason helped me out, but I did it myself. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. That's what I want. That's, that's well, definitely what it was. Yeah. I mean, it's just creating the environment, right? If you can, it's the same thing in the military. If you, if you create a, a quality training environment and you have, you you can have all the tools there, but if you don't have the environment and the engagement plan and the opportunity of like, how are you going to set up this lane? How are you going to set up, you know, this, this range to be successful so that we maximize the amount of the ammo count that we have. We maximize the number of charges that we have. We maximize the number of people that we have here. Like you, you just have to have the environment and have a plan set out to make everybody else successful. And that's ultimately what it's done mm -hmm. is is have that platform and create that environment for people to find their own success i appreciate that that's exactly what we're going for yeah. you know and you guys are a success story you know for warrior rising and um you know leroy putri says uh medal of honor recipient ranger good friend of mine he's at uh, mission six zero and warrior rising as well when people say thank you for your service leroy he always says don't let me down. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of a shock to them. Like, wow, wow, I never really thought about it like that. And so I, I kind of say the same thing to guys and say, thanks, Jason, for the help at Warrior Rising. I'm like, hey, don't let me down, man. <laughs> yeah. you know, you're, you're next on the line, my next on the line. Your success is, is my success. Your failure is my failure. So, mm -hmm. so keep grinding. Keep oh, yeah. grinding. Enjoy the, embrace the suck. Enjoy the journey and uh, live that deliberate discomfort life, you know? Yeah, so that that's 
perfect segue into the, the next thing, you know, mission six zero. Um, it was very interesting kind of how that happened for myself, how I got ultimately connected with you the first time. Um, so again, listen to Jordan's podcast. Uh, you were talking about, you know, your work at mission six zero and warrior rising warrior rising was in the back of my mind. Cause I, I didn't think about starting my own business at the time. It wasn't even on my radar. Um, and so this was probably what we started talking probably June of 2020, I think is like the very first conversation we had. Um, and I, I, I came to you and I said, you know, I've been having this idea of doing some sort of leadership engagement, uh, within my company. And I wanted to figure out a way to kind of tie in some of my military experience as well. And it was to, to initially get some of your advice, but then also potentially, you know, capitalize on, on mission six zero success and what you guys do. Um, and to come in as consultants and provide some leadership training to our company. Um, I think as things developed and we figured out, you know, for the management conference that we were going to have, it was the year of COVID. We couldn't do something in person, even though some people wanted to, others did not, just it didn't work out. And so I, you know, internally we came up with this idea to do VR training. And I think I remember the very first time we brought it up, I saw your face and it wasn't necessarily a, sense of disbelief it was just like how the hell are we gonna do this <laughs> it's like i think it just you started rattling everything in the back of your brain like all right i know i've done it on this platform i've done it in this location i've done all these other things how do i apply that to a virtual environment exactly exactly what i was thinking because we've never done a virtual team building event before mm -hmm. right sometimes my my team internally they'll say what if we did a VR thing? I'm like, okay, explain to me how we're going to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I don't know. And they're like, well, we can, you know, now I have a client telling me I want to do a VR event. And it's kind of like, all right, tell me how you're going to do that. And you did that. We'll get these Oculus devices. We'll get it for everybody in the company. We're going to use this platform. And I'm just like, first off, <laughs> I don't want to provide, um, a less than unbelievable experience for you. Mm -hmm. Less than an amazing experience because, you know, Mission Six Zero is, is a brand, it's a culture, and I, I want it to be tied to professionalism and, and going above and beyond for our clients to deliver the, the best experience ever. And I'm thinking, you know, uh, I've played video games like Call of Duty and things like that. And, you know, although I, I'm a Green Beret, you know, and I've trained on all those things in combat, like me playing a video game, like my arms are going everywhere. I can't like, I can't, you know, focus and get my scope correctly. And it's just, I'm just not good. And so I'm like <laughs> thinking to myself, all right, I'm gonna train these guys virtually uh, on some of this, you know, leadership training using kind of a military VR sort of system. I'm just going to be, I'm just going to embarrass myself. I'm going to be the guy like spinning around, you know, like trying to tell people what to do. And your guys are like, no, we're going to get this platform. We'll train you guys up. Our guys will be trained up. And we did it. And we had one of our guys actually show up in person at your office. Joe Cerna mm -hmm. did. And um, I monitored the whole thing, just observed from afar to make put out fires, make sure everything went well. I can believe how incredible that that whole event was. I mean, you guys had a blast. You learned a ton. 
um, you know, there was a couple of fires to put out, some things that we had to take care of techno- technically, you know, the technology was, you know, whatever, but uh, it was awesome. Yeah. You know, it was one of our best events. And so now we offer a VR experience at my company just because you guys, you guys showed me the way. You proved it to me that it could work. Yeah. And, and Joe got motion sickness. <laughs> yeah. I didn't tell you about this, but, uh, well, maybe Joe has told you, but me and him ended up being in the same group together because, um, we did kind of a dry fire, uh, with Craig, the, the president, company president. And, uh, he kind of did a dry fire with everybody online first to see how everybody was going to do. And he could already tell Joe was having a little bit of uneasiness, especially going up and down stairs. <laughs> so he was like, all right, Dan, since you know, you've done this type of training and stuff like that, be with Joe just in case. <laughs> And so me and him were in the same room and I think on two or three different occasions, he came up to me and took off his headset and whispered to me. He's like, Dan, I got to take a knee. I got to drink some water. Can you, can you fill in for me? But it was, it was, it was fine. It was perfect. It was completely seamless. Like the guys even in the environment had no idea Joe left for, you know, a few minutes, just sip on some water, but it was just comical to me. <laughs> he came up to me. He's like, Dan, like whispering. Cause there were other guys in the room too, that were in our group. And he's like, Dan, Dan, can you take over just for a few minutes? I'm like, yeah, man, we're good. Oh my God. All right, I'll give you a hard time for that. That's funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was uh, uh, an incredible thing. And it, uh, you know what's funny is I've talked to multiple people. I've talked to Jeff Adams again. We had him on on the podcast. We've had Joe actually. and Jeff. Yeah, we've had Joe and Jeff, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this last week, we talked to Jeff and we went off, like, I think after the podcast, we were talking about for probably another 20, 30 minutes about yeah how VR has so, so much value to it, especially, you know, especially games like that, that have much more of the tactile, like you have to actually go through the motions of mag change and everything. You have to hold the gun and actually look down the site. You can't just like spray and pray like you do in other joystick video games. And uh, we just went off about how useful it could be to the military and, um, and like how instead of playing Call of Duty for training on your off time, you could actually just pick up a VR headset and, you know, train in that environment. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like this, mm-hmm. this could be the next thing in the military that, you know, they they capitalize on and start issuing it to teams and squads and stuff like that. But um, it was very cool to see that. And then the last thing I'll say about it is after the event, you know, obviously everybody was charged up and excited, but I actually took some people that were there in the office, created a, a glass house for them on the floor and they were in separate groups. And I was like, all right, I want to see how much this translates to the real world. Stack up on this glass house door and clear the room. And they did it pretty much flawlessly. That's amazing, man. That's incredible. Communication, yeah. you know, team building. Fantastic. Man, it's great to hear. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, but going back to Mission Six Zero and and especially uh, your book, Deliberate Discomfort. So I've read the book. Well, actually, I should tell you the truth. I've read about eighty percent of it. I've read hundred percent, but I've read about eighty percent. And honestly, the reason why is because I've been digesting them chapter by chapter, and actually like actually utilizing some of those tools in the leadership development course that I've developed for my company. So I've been pulling stuff from there as I need it. 
uh, to utilize in in my course. So it's it's been awesome and it's been an incredible tool for me. But I, I kind of want to know how you came up with the idea to write that book and especially the way that you did it was really cool because, you know, I won't be, I don't feel like I'm giving too much away here by saying this, but each chapter is kind of an intro of, of how you, but from the individual's perspective, how you tied into each one of their lives and how you were connected to them and how you've, you've basically created this network of, of life knowledge and leadership. And then you explain that in the book from each individual person's perspective and then tie it into some science behind it. That's right. And I appreciate you saying all of that. It's uh, it's an honor to hear that. Uh, I'm very proud of the book. Um, you know, I'm the author of the book, but I never wanted it to be like, you know, the Jason Van Camp show. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a, I'm a team guy. I want my team to be involved because they're incredible people with amazing stories. And, and the power of team is going to get you through to the end of the day, you know, power of tribe it's going to win you know i'll take a team over an individual any day of the week mm-hmm. right um and i've created a pretty impressive incredible team you know of, of soft guys green berets and seals and rangers and marines and delta guys and medal of honor recipients and um and phds researchers scientists experts you know and um I knew that I had to write a book, get some material, get, get our curriculum out there. It's the only way to really succeed in the leadership development industry. And I'd been kind of chewing on it for years. Like, what am I going to say? Do I, you know, sort of the imposter syndrome thing. What am I going to say? I don't want to be a guy who's just telling war stories. I want it to be about leadership. I want it to be real and authentic. And I want people to be vulnerable. I want it to be impactful. How do I do that? You know, and um, I'd never seen a book written the way that Dilbert Discomfort is written, where I, I said, all right, let's let's follow a journey, my journey, Jason Van Camp's journey, not in combat, but in, in getting ready to go to combat about learning how to lead, you know, learning how to be a part of a winning culture. And uh, Colonel Brian Pettit, you know, is, is one of the greatest leaders I've ever known. You know, he's a legend in the, in the Green Beret community. He really is. And uh, I said, you know, what if I started the book where I'm going into my company commander's office and it's a conversation between me and Brian Pettit. And I take all the lessons learned from previous company commanders in my life and, you know, different people that have said different things to me that have impacted me. And I turned that into sort of an in-brief, like the company in-brief. And Brian Pettit tells me, Jason, in order to succeed as a Green Beret, in order to succeed in this company, you need to buy into what I'm preaching here. You need to buy into the culture here. And in order to do that, you have to meet people um, in this organization, find out what makes them tick. And so the whole book is me going to different individuals and talking with them and finding out who they are, hearing their stories, and why, understanding why they did the things that they did. And then, you know, as you said, Dan, we break down uh, that experience into relatable and digestible action items, you know, where a a scientist on my team says, okay, you know, instead of a a soft guy saying, you know, getting the question asked, hey, how did you do that? Instead of them saying, well, I don't know, I just relied on my training or I don't know, I just did it. Now I have a scientist that says, okay, well, there's a theory behind the way they acted here. 
Mm-hmm. And this is the theory, and this is what we need to understand. Here's the so what and the now what behind it. And then uh, I, I followed that up by saying, okay, we gave you a story. We gave you some science. You know, I'm going to talk to you in layman's terms. This is the practical application for you. And, uh, and this is how I broke down every chapter, and it's kind of focusing on different themes in every chapter um, under, the, under the whole umbrella of getting comfortable being uncomfortable, which I call the deliberate discomfort mindset, mm. which is the title of the book, Deliberate Discomfort. And, you know, the final chapter is me going back into Brian Pettit's office and saying, hey, sir, this is what I learned. And then him kind of basically, you know, telling me why that's important and introducing me to my team. And so it sort of sets up uh, the next book, which is, you know, uh, Leadership in Combat, which, you know, I'm kind of working on right now. Mm. Ah, awesome. There's another one coming. Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited about that one. Is that... Is that going to be more geared for like um, military members going into combat or is it going to also be kind of geared towards people going into stressful situations in general, just knowing that there's chaos and you got to figure out how to deal with it? Yeah, definitely the latter. Um, You're going into chaos. How do you deal with it? You know, this was sort of, you know, from a from a corporate, you know, co- company level thing, it's sort of like you've got a new employee. He's coming to your team. What do you do to prepare them to succeed? And now the next question is, OK, now that they're here, what are some common pitfalls? What are some challenges that they're going to face? Where are the stressors? You know, how what does that look like? And I'm going to take lessons learned from from deliberate discomfort, what people liked Mm-hmm. you know, and really kind of focus on that. And, and I think what I'm seeing is people want to see more vulnerability. They want to see a, a deeper authenticity. They want more intense stories, which you're going to get with this second book because of the the combat nature of it all, you know, um, and, uh, and more profound practical application. And so I'm going to kind of focus on that. I, I, I think I'm going to continue – with the same pattern, you know, with the story from the first person perspective of, of somebody science and then a practical application. But, um, we'll see, you know, it's kind of nebulous, very nebulous right now. I love that. That that, sounds awesome. I was going to say, there's a few key words that you said in there that I think are, are so important is, is, you know, they have to be, um, vulnerable in a sense, these stories, like they, people have to connect with them at a different level. And, and that's kind of the, you know, the idea behind our book too, right? We want to tell the veteran stories, but not necessarily, you know, we're going a little bit different because we want to talk about the transition and set up a way for veterans to figure out success post-military. But um, for this, it absolutely makes sense is, you know, yes, you go through that chaos and combat, but how do you process the events that are going on to get past that hurdle to make sure that your team gets out alive, to make sure that you get out alive, to make sure that you complete your mission, to make sure that you can do all the things you're supposed to do. But you know, there's that quote that you could have the perfect plan going into a fight, but the first time you get punched in the nose, that that plan goes out the window. And it's it's processing that and understanding, you know, where do I go from here? Um, so I'm excited. I'm I'm super excited about uh, the next idea for the book. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I appreciate it, guys. Uh, you'll, you'll be the first to know, you know, when it's, when it's published. It's a work in progress. And as you know, like as you guys write your book, it's, you can't force uh, creativity. No. You, you can't. 
You know, like there are times where you're like, oh, I set aside two hours to work on the book today. And you got nothing there. You're like, I got no juices flowing. I'm forcing the issue. That's definitely and been you look me. back at what you wrote. And you only wrote maybe a page and it sucks. Yeah. Right. And then there's other times where you're like, dude, I don't care what I'm doing right now. I got to stop and I got to start writing because I'm inspired. Mm-hmm. And it just flows, man. And like you just you're yeah. feeling good. You look back on it and you're like, man, where did this come from? Because this looks good, you know, and uh, and that's how, how you have to do it, man. You can't force it, right? Yeah, I'm definitely an inspirational writer. Like I have to feel it in the moment and then I can just like, boom, it just comes out. Mm-hmm. If I'm somebody who's got a deadline and you're like, you've got to put in 10 pages today or you got to put in, you know, uh, whatever it was like I w- always in school. That's how I was, too, is like, yeah, sometimes I would procrastinate and be at a deadline. But then sometimes I would work way ahead because I was already inspired by something and I would just crush it and get through, you know, 10, 20 page paper. No problem in a breeze. Yeah, exactly. That, that's I'm telling you guys, as, as you're kind of creating your masterpiece, just be inspired. Don't force anything that um, is isn't exposing your heart. You know, don't force anything that isn't like your authentic self. But that's the um, the hard part. I would say is is it's more as I'm designing each page as I'm focusing on, and this is, you know, Dan's words in the beginning of this is when I looked at how much content 200 pages really is when you're designing, I mean, the, the details of taking people's deployment photos and making them look like old Polaroids, you know, and like adding dust and scratches on everything and adding scotch tape or whatever to make it look like they're taped in the book, all that, like really crazy in depth detail. I was like, fuck, this book's going to take forever. Like, how are we, how am I going to do this? And Dan was like, focus on one story at a time, like focus on every single veteran and put your all into every single veteran story because it's important to tell their story authentically. And that's kind of what got me through page after page and getting inspired is I'd get a new name in the deck that Tom was already done transcribing. And I'd be like, oh, sweet. I remember meeting up with them in Colorado. I'm excited to design their page now. And, um, so that's how I that's how I've personally been going about it. But it's also kind of cool because there's like you said, there's been times where I've just sat there on my computer staring at the screen in Photoshop, like, well, I know I need to do this. I'm gonna go make a peanut butter sandwich because I don't know what I'm gonna do. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got bail when you're like in that zone, man. You're like, I'm bailing, you know, and yeah. I'll come back when I'm feeling it. I'll come back in a couple hours and I'll, I'll work when on you it. Feel it. Like sometimes it just the inspiration comes in, in weird moments, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. You, gotta, you gotta go with it when you get it. That's um, cool, man. So last last uh, major thing I wanted to talk to you about. So from the deliberate discomfort uh book and then kind of it, it seems like you you kind of had to change focus in a lot of ways because of 2020 a lot of your business i'm guessing kind of got pushed out or completely canceled because of everything going virtual online a lot of especially mission six zero stuff is is a lot of in-person keynote speaking leadership development all that kind of stuff so was that the emphasis and the idea behind um creating the deliberate discomfort challenge and just coming up with another way to continue to build your tribe and and kind of get people in the similar mindset? Yeah, definitely so. So, I mean, gosh, Deliver Discomfort, the book came out in February of 2020. Mm-hmm. And then COVID hit 
in March of 2020, <laughs> right? So like what is more appropriate than deliberate discomfort for 2020? So book sales went, were, were very good. We sold almost 30,000 copies of deliberate discomfort, which is really, really awesome, really exciting. Um, and at the time, I didn't realize how much I had to change the business to, to survive. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time I thought, you know, okay, well, this isn't working anymore. We're, we're not going to get hired for any more keynotes at the time. Nobody was doing, nobody was doing keynotes, man. Nobody was even thinking about virtual keynotes. Uh, the team building stuff that we do in person, all of them were canceled or, or postponed. Jeez. You know, all of them, mm-hmm. except for one because of you, Dan, which was a virtual one, which was <laughs> awesome. You know, um, all the contracts that I had with the NFL canceled, you know, and I wasn't like panicking. I was excited because I was like, okay, there's, there are opportunities here. Where are the opportunities? Let's discuss them. Let's try to figure out what we can do differently. You know, and it's like, well, if I had known what was going to happen beforehand, I might've changed mission six zero into, you know, a, um, a mask company. If I'd known like a year ago, I'd be like, oh, we're going to create masks because yep. we know when COVID hits, everyone yep. wants a mask. And we're going to start marketing the hell out of this. You know, but I was thinking, what can we do differently? What can we do? And um, and I was like, well, we got the book. We have the curriculum in the book. Let's create a master class. Let's have everybody on the team, you know, come together and we'll do this via Zoom and we'll create this really cool master class talking about the book and all the veterans and the scientists in the book will be talking um, you know, it's going to be like a, uh, you can see their faces, you can hear their words from them directly. It'll be a great thing. So we did that and we created like a click funnel model where you get a free book and then you can upgrade to the master class. And, and we started to get some momentum there and it was like, okay, what else can we do? And, um, it just kind of dawned on me, like, let's do a challenge. And, um, and this is how the challenge is going to look. And I didn't know if it was a good idea or not. And I brought it to, to my team and, my team, they were all like, dude, that's an awesome idea. I want to do that. Let's do it. And I said, well, let's, let's beta test it first to see if it works. And I was the only guy that was willing to do the beta test. <laughs> Lost 34 pounds, man. Wow. And I developed some pretty amazing habits. You know, I started reading again every day. And I started, you know, doing mindfulness and, you know, all this stuff. And I was just like, dude, this works, man. Mm-hmm. This is awesome. And, uh, and I told the team, let's start marketing it you know, in, in November and December, and let's launch this thing in January. And we launched the challenge in January and we had over 200 people sign up for the first class. And um, what I didn't realize was the power of tribe, the mm-hmm. power of, of just a community of people that yeah. are going through something together, that are like-minded, that are encouraging each other. And the people in our community were all very positive. They weren't like posting pictures of themselves with their shirts off and flexing and commenting on, you know, whatever. They were, they were like, you know what? You have to complete these six things, six requirements today. And I'm going to help you accomplish your six requirements. I'm going to be here to support you. I'm going to send you some text messages. I'm going to call you if you need help. I'm going to encourage you. And people were saying, you know what? I got this workout done today, even though I was super sore, even though you know, I have COVID or even though, you know, it was late at night, I still got it done. And then people started saying, I got it done because of this person who yesterday inspired me 
when they posted this or when they said this or when they talked to me, you know, I knew that if they were putting forth the effort, I had to do the same, mm -hmm. you know, and I wasn't going to let this person down. And all of a sudden you're like, man, we have something really powerful here. We have a, we have a great thing going here. And then uh, the people that completed the challenge, they're sending me all these testimonials, you know, about how much weight they lost, about the habits they've developed and about how it's changed their life. And it's like, okay, I'm bought into this. I believe in this. I'm seeing the results. I'm seeing the testimonials. Let's turn the volume up on this thing. And so um, it's going to be a big thing. We have 12 classes already, the people, uh, classes that are going through the challenge right now in 2021. Mm. Hopefully we get more and more and more. We get hundreds of thousands of people doing this because it's, it's good for individuals. It's good for teams. It's good for our country. Mm. And it's, uh, it's really the only way to grow and improve and become successful in life is by um, embracing discomfort, you know, by getting comfortable being uncomfortable. You know, doing hard things because you have to choose hard things or hard things are going to choose you. Yeah. You, know, you have to do it that way. You have to prepare and prevent, you know, instead of repair and repent, you know, you have to be prepared for that. Is there um, is there a place, Jason, where people that are listening to this podcast where they can go and find information if that's that challenge is still active, if it's still going, that if they might be interested in signing up or they want to just know what this challenge consists of? Absolutely. So thanks, Bo. It's challenge dot deliberate discomfort dot com. Mm, okay. Or you could go directly to mission six zero dot com mm -hmm. and um you know under the services you're gonna see the challenge and That's just awesome. click on that link and it'll send you there. You know, it's it's such a perfect time, like yeah, maybe middle of twenty twenty could have been slightly better timing but I, I, th there's no better time than right now to have something like this too because yeah. everybody even though things are starting to open back up people have gotten used to even if they're opening up th they've gotten used to the idea of being separated of like not having like gyms being open and going and attending classes or just being more interactive with their community or whatever it is and so it's it's really cool to see this and see people interact and and be interactive online and feel like you're in person because you're going through the same struggles, the same uh, requirements, the same physical transfer uh, transformations, spiritual, intellectual transformations, all of it happening simultaneously. So it's really cool to to have something like this right now, especially while COVID is still very much a thing and people lives are people's lives are still being impacted by it, that they can still come together and focus on the things that really are important. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. Focus on what's important to you, what's important to this country, and, and be selfish about being selfless. You know, help other people achieve their dreams because if you do, they're going to help you achieve yours. Yeah. You know, that's it's just the way that it is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you have all these, all these things, and I, I feel like this is not going to be an easy answer for you. Maybe it will. Maybe you've thought of this. Um, but what is what is the one thing that that you think drives you? Like, what is your your mantra? What what keeps you going? You know, that's a hard question. You know, because I can give you a lot of answers to that. And uh, I think, you know, the purpose of life is to find your gift, and the meaning of life is to is to give that gift away. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think I've found my gift, and that's helping other people. Now, what drives me? A number of things. 
You know, pride drives me. Competition drives me. My family drives me. You know, I want them to be happy and cared for and protected. You know, I want them to be proud of me. You know, um, I want them to, to have freedom. You know, a lot of people say, I want to make money. Well, why do you want to make money? Because I want to buy this or that. I want to do this or that. Really what you're saying is you want freedom. You want the freedom to be able to do what you want. You know, I want my kids to be able to do what they want. I want to give them every opportunity possible. And and uh, as I say that, I, I don't want to do it for them. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to inspire them to do it for themselves. You know, because that's how strong kids, strong people are made. You know, um, and uh, I think... What drives me also is, you know, like my, my parents, you know, like they put a lot of time and effort into, into me and trying to create me. You know, a lot of people say I'm a self-made man. I don't believe in that, you know, because along the way there are people that helped you, whether yeah. your parents or your friends or somebody did something for you to create the person that you are. I agree. And I'm certainly not a self-made man. Like my parents put forth their their whole lives, their, their, their income, their money, their resources, you know, their time, everything that they did was for me and my brother and sister, everything. Fantastic parents. Even when, you know, I was growing up, you know, sometimes you think, Oh, my parents are, are losers or I don't, you know, whatever, you don't appreciate them. <laughs> I never was like that. I always looked at my parents like, wow, like they're, they're, busting their asses they're putting their effort a lot of effort into me and i recognize that Mm -hmm. and when you see your own parents do that you know it kind of gets ingrained in you that you need to do that Mm -hmm. for your kids when you're in that position um and so i'm in a position now where i have a young daughter that's four and a a son that's going to turn two this summer and i think to myself all the time like you know if they're crying or whatever i'm like my parents dealt with me when i was like that and now it's my turn to deal with this and, and do better at it than my parents did. Yeah. And so that kind of drives me as well. You know, my, my wife, I want her to be happy and grateful that she's, you know, decided to marry me, you know, I don't want her to regret that. And mm-hmm. so I always try to make sure that she's um, protected, cared for. She has everything that she needs. I'm helping her accomplish her vision, her dream, her goals, you know, and, um, you know, the guys to my left and to my right, my brothers, you know, I, I care about them. I worry about them a lot, mm. you know, and I always want to be there for them and help them, um, you know, with their businesses or their jobs or whatever mm. they're, they're looking for. So I guess there's a lot that's, that's driving me right now. You know, the stories, I want to get stories, I want to have, a, uh, you know, a meaningful life. But uh, I'll just leave it with that, guys. I could probably yeah. go on and yeah. on and on. About I, I, I think it, it, it comes you know, boils down to, to one idea is, is to always pay it forward. And whether that's, you know, to the person literally in front of you or those around you is when you, when you see success or have success, like, like you said, your, your, your meaning in life is to find your gift and then, or your, your purpose in life is to find your gift. And then your meaning in life is to give it to somebody else. And I think that's, incredibly powerful and like i said it, every example that you said is is just pay it forward have that empathy figure out how you can help out you know your person to your left or to your right the people in your household your friends your family um just being a good community member in general and and trying to create a level of positivity that 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 helps everybody definitely in my linkedin profile i have uh, husband father good dude 
<laughs> be a good dude for other people. You know, in the military, you don't get a chance to, to really meet everybody and get to know them personally. But you get into this club where they're like, hey, if you know this uh, this Van Camp guy, you know, question you always get, hey, you know this Blakely guy? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the answer that you, you strive for, the answer that you want to hear is, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that guy. He's a good dude. Yep, yep. But once you get that good stamp, good dude stamp of approval, you know, um, you're, you're, you're one of them. You're one of the team. You know, like you're in. You know, and sometimes that's all you need in life in order to get to where you want to go to, to succeed is somebody to vouch for you, somebody to say, this is a good dude and you yeah. should support him. Yep. You should back him up. Always. And so I try to live my life so that other people say, yeah, Van Camp, I don't know him super well, but, you know, I've heard he's a good dude or, you know, I, I know him a little bit. He's a good dude. Yeah. Good. It's accomplished for me. Yeah. And I think, um, Jason, as we, as we begin to start to wrap up the episode, I'm curious to kind of know from your perspective, what is one stereotype surrounding the veteran community that, you know, you would like to see a change in? You know, this is what I see a lot of. I see a lot of, uh, apprehension from the corporate community for veterans that are in the civilian workplace because they think, man, is this guy, is this guy, does this guy have PTSD, mm-hmm. right? Is he, is he going to snap? Is he going to come in here and start shooting up the office? Is he going to come in here and start telling these really graphic, uh, inappropriate war stories? You know, is, is who is this guy? And what is it? What is he all about? You know, I want people to, be open to the veterans and understand that they're not all like that. Some of them you have to, um, you know, be empathetic to, and you have to um, understand that there are certain things that you can't say or do or ask them. You know, like certainly, you don't say how many people did you kill the first time you meet a guy or no, yeah. you know, something like that. But you know, be open, be willing to listen. You know. Um, and be willing to befriend the veteran and get to know them, you know, because veterans go into the civilian work workforce a lot of times and they say, it didn't work for me because nobody brought me into their, their, their tribe, their community, their club. I was never accepted as one of their own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it goes both ways as well. When you're a veteran, just because the civilians never served in the military doesn't mean that they're, they're, they're not as, um, they're not on your level, yeah. right? Or you're better than them in some way. Now, serving the military is just something you did. It, it, does, it doesn't define you. It's not your identity any longer. You know, you take great pride in the military. You had purpose. It's over now. Find your new purpose, whatever that might be. For Warrior Rising guys, it's starting a business. For other people, it's, you know, uh, getting a job and doing well at your profession and so forth. So I would say, you know, for veterans, open your mind. Humble yourself, be willing to learn new things, you know, be willing to um, take your military experiences and your stories and and apply them when appropriate, mm-hmm. right? For the civilians, kind of the same thing. Be open and willing to embrace these individuals, listen to them, ask them questions, get to know them, bring them into the community. You know, if they're doing um, something that, that isn't appropriate, like, for example, Flo Groberg is a great friend of mine. He's a Mission 6-0 guy, a Medal of Honor guy. 
you know, at his first job, you know, at his first meeting, he busted out a can of Copenhagen, you know, and he starts like clicking, you know, flipping the, the can and then uh, it's <laughs> the cup that he was spitting in in the middle of a meeting. And he thought that was normal because in the military, when we have meetings, it is normal, you know, but then uh, his boss after the fact was like, hey, Flo, can I, can I talk to you for a second? I was like, sure. You know, with a big thing, a dip in his mouth. And he's like, Flo, I understand you're a hero. You're a Medal of Honor guy. But don't you ever, ever do that again. And Flo's like, Roger, got it. I won't do it again. <laughs> and it was just like a lapse of judgment just because he wasn't in that environment. And now Flo would never do that. But yeah. at the time, he did. And so that's and that's kind of the point I'm trying to make is um, don't be offended right off the bat. Um, be willing to not be offended, be willing to teach and for the veterans, be willing to be coachable. And that's what I'll leave you with. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I, you know, I had a friend, uh, we just met actually in, in just outside of Columbus, Ohio on our road trip. And, uh, almost that exact same situation happened to him. He did something that was, would have been appropriate in the military. Wouldn't have been a problem. And, uh, he got an HR complaint against him and got fired for it mm -hmm. and it's like you know i don't know create an environment to where you can still allow veterans to succeed like have a three strike rule or something i don't know but yeah. it was it was kind of ridiculous what he got fired for and it, 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 it's so frustrating but to your point about the stereotypes is especially in the you know in the corporate world or whatever just be understanding of each other veterans to civilians civilians to veterans mm -hmm. connect on a human level you, like you said, you really need to not be offended. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what is next for Jason Van Camp? My family, first and foremost, you know, my son's going to turn two in a few months, you know, um, and uh, we're doing some work around the house, you know, finishing the basement, you know, making my wife happy, that sort of thing. And uh, just focusing on the family is what's next for me. Mm -hmm. uh, for Mission Six Zero. You know, we're starting to open up team building events again, which is exciting. We have our first one next week, uh, a week from tomorrow. And, uh, you know, we're still doing the keynotes. The workshops are going really well. We, we need more workshops. We need more clients. The challenge, we want to build that thing up. You know, we're getting about 30 people, plus or minus uh, five every week, which is great. But we uh, want to just, you know, keep building that thing up. Towards yeah. it. It's a fantastic program. Warrior Rising. We're looking at a Memorial Day event in D.C., mm -hmm. which we're fired up about with the Washington Nationals. Uh, looks like potentially Tommy Parker, or, you know, our friend there, Triple MVT Marine, he's going to throw out a first pitch at the Vats oh, wow. game. That's cool. Which we're excited about. We're going to go out and support Anthony Cubbage. Uh, you guys know the yep. Atomic Fishing Charter on the Potomac. We're going to go out fishing with him. And then uh, we're going to do our, our Napa business shower mm -hmm. on june 26 at silverado resort spa so if you guys want to come out to that as guests please let me know it's going to be a blast yeah. wine country little thing and uh and we're just going to grow just keep building keep grinding you know having fun you know grinding you know yeah. the, the whole happiness the whole the whole you know experience is is in the journey you know it isn't holding a trophy at the end of the day or exiting your company or counting your money or, or swimming in your money bin, you know, life isn't about trophies. It's about people. And it's about the journey that you take with those people. And that's what I'm all about. 
No, that's that's awesome and it's exciting to hear and I'm, I'm i'm excited for you i'm excited for your family especially getting some time to focus on family um i'm excited for what 2021 has to offer for like i said you uh, each organization you're part of mission six zero folks uh warrior rising folks the next up and coming veterpreneurs who are going to get involved in warrior rising um i think it's just an exciting time it's probably i don't know i feel like probably 2020 was a, a little bit of a crazy rocky year, but hopefully 2021 is going to be a, a year of excitement and new opportunities um, that have been created from last year. Mm -hmm. I love it. Well said. 2020 was interesting, you know, but it was fun and it was profitable. Yep. 2021, we'll, we'll see how that goes. It, it, hopefully it'll, it'll also be interesting and profitable and, and uh, we'll have a great time together doing it. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for, uh, taking the time out of your night and joining us tonight and uh, being on the podcast and everything you've done for us so far. And I'm looking forward to continuing to collaborate on things in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Thank no you, doubt. Jason. No doubt guys. The honor is all mine. Let me tell you, it's a pleasure to know you guys and I'm proud of you guys. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks course, brother. Thank Talk you. to you soon. Sounds good.